Hello there, and welcome to yet another episode of 177 Nations of Tasmania. I remember as an undergraduate at the University of Tasmania back in the 1990s, there were a lot of Malaysian students on campus. I mean, they were probably the largest international student group but by some way at that time. And many students like me forged sort of long-standing personal relationships with Malaysians. And so... For some of us, Malaysia has a bit of a special place in our hearts. But the connections go beyond this. In fact, Malaysians make up the 10th largest overseas-born group in Tasmania and have for decades been one of our major trading partners. But how much do we really know about this former British colony in Southeast Asia and its people? Well, in this episode, I'm joined by James, a Malaysian-born academic at the University of Tasmania, who I'm hoping will enlighten us further about uh, both Malaysia and its people. Right. Well, thank you very much for, for your kind invitation to take part in your program. So basically, I'm an academic at the University of Tasmania. Former title is Professor of Asian Studies. So I teach in the Politics and International Studies program at UTAS. Back in 2013, uh, I was offered a job in Tasmania. Basically, at that time, the government then wanted to set up an Asian institute at the university to promote the understanding of Asia within the larger Tasmanian community and also to create links with Asia. So I was interviewed for that job and they offered me the job and I arrived here in the uh, end of 2014 to, to set up the Asia Institute. And ha- did you have any previous connections with Tasmania? Uh, not really. Uh, I had some connections with Australian universities. I was working for Monash, but I had no connection with Tasmania. Uh, what I've been told when I was living in Australia is that uh, Tasmania is unique because it's the only place that is very European in terms of the weather. You get long, cold winters, wet winters. Uh, other than that, I've always been told that Tasmania was a very beautiful place, almost like a postcard island. What factors, I guess, or, or what influenced your decision to decide to come here and take up the job? Um, I think the main driver for my relocation to Tasmania uh, was the fact that I understood clearly that in Australia, uh, most of the Asian centres you find around Australian universities were concentrated on Northeast Asia, especially China and Japan. And I thought somebody like me who works on Southeast Asia uh, could make a major contribution if I were to come here and sort of balance out the understanding of Asia. Even today, if you look around Australia, uh, most of the think tanks in Australia, uh, most of their work concerns with Japan, Korea and then China. There are very few people here who actually work on Southeast Asia. Yeah, which is in some ways doesn't quite make sense because we have so many connections with Southeast Asia. And there's, I mean, as we talked about over the phone the University of Tasmania has a strong historic connections with Malaysia I and mean, when I was a student here pretty much 90% of the students were from Malaysia yeah so it's surprising that there's such a lack of interest is that the right way to put it I think for a very long time the reason why uh, in in, in uh, the upper echelons of the Australian society and I include that the universities as well the reason why there hasn't been much interest in Southeast Asia was primarily due to the fact that the Australian policy class always felt that uh, they knew Southeast Asia very well. So if you look back in, in Australia's interaction with Southeast Asia, you have long-term defence links through a thing called the Five Powers Defence Pact. And also in the 50s, Australia launched a very successful programme called the, uh, the Colombo Plan. So that allowed thousands of Southeast Asian students to come over to Australia to study. And the Australians always felt that they understood uh, Southeast Asia very well. 
And even today, if you go to many parts of Southeast Asia, you find that uh, in almost all the countries of Southeast Asia, uh, there will be a sizable number of the elites there who have studied in Australia. So in some ways, the Australians felt that we understand those societies very well, so there's really no need to sort of, you know, put additional resources into trying to understand those societies. In the last 20 years, I think the big thing that has changed is that they've sort of narrowed the field in Southeast Asia. Now when you talk about Southeast Asia, I think the primary interest is in Indonesia, and that's primarily for security purposes. Because obviously, if you look at the map of Australia, if you look north, the first country that you will hit will be uh, Indonesia. But there are long-term, uh, there are long-standing ties between Australia and between Australia and Malaysia, Singapore. Uh, part of it has got to do with the fact that all these three countries were part of the uh, British colonial system, including Australia. So Australia always felt very much at home in Malaysia, Singapore, because all the institutions were very familiar to them. So that's the reason why even today you find that there are thousands of Australians who visit Malaysia and Singapore every year. What were your sort of first impressions on when coming to Tasmania? The move to Tasmania was extremely easy. In those days when I came in 2014, there wasn't a housing crisis. So I managed to find a permanent accommodation, I think, one week after I arrived. Obviously, when I arrived here, I rang up all the uh, agents and what have you. They took me around. But it was relatively easy to find a, a house here in those days. So I ended up staying uh, very close to a beach at a place called Blackman's Bay. So that's quite a pleasant place. Um, I found Tasmania to be very easy to relocate because there wasn't, uh, what they call it, it wasn't a, a city lifestyle. Uh, there's not much of a traffic. So for me, everything was good. The only negative aspects of Tasmania, and this was something that it would have been impossible for me to sort of uh, double check before I arrived here, uh, was the fact that once I arrived here, I started getting hay fever. Oh, right, yeah. So there's no way you can check that until you physically live in that society. So I've been suffering from very severe hair fever for the last five or six years. So uh, the strange thing is the running joke I have with my friends is that I come from a place like Malaysia where uh, the pollution is quite high. Uh, so a place that where I live like Kuala Lumpur, Kuching, uh, the pollution is much worse. The air quality is much worse. And yet I don't get hay, hay fever over there. But I come to a place where there's clean air, I get it straight away. I mean, that's a joke, but the reality is that I did my blood test and I was told that I'm allergic to the trees and the plants and the grass over here in Tasmania. So basically what happens in the first few years, I think many of my students and colleagues were quite afraid of me <laughs> because I came in with uh, red eyes. I look angry all the time. <laughs> but that wasn't me. I was quite a friendly person. It was the hay fever that made me look angry all the time. So, Yeah, I guess it could, yeah, you could look like a... Um Someone who'd been on an alcoholic bender or something the night before. Yes, absolutely. Have you noticed any sort of differences? Because you've, you've lived in a couple of different places in Australia. Have you noticed anything um, distinctly different about life in Tasmania or maybe the people? Sure. I think... Um Obviously, if you look at Australia, Australia has always been very proud of its multicultural background. In fact, it's been government policy for many years. I would argue that Tasmania is probably the least multicultural place. Uh, part of it has got to do with the falling population and the fact that they haven't taken in a lot of migrants. But a very simple example of that is that if you go to most of the capital cities on the mainland, uh, one of the defining tourist spots is a Chinatown. Yeah, and yeah. you don't find a Chinatown in Hobart, even though the Chinese community has been in Tasmania for hundreds and hundreds of years. So one of the other great things about living in Tasmania uh, compared to, say, living in many parts of Asia, and a lot of Asian migrants would agree with me, is, is 
you get a, a balance between your work life and your family life. As I mentioned, my own personal experience is that living in places like big cities like Kuala Lumpur, Kuching, I normally don't get home until six or seven o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. I hardly see my children. Uh, but here, you know, I get to see them all the time, especially on the weekends. Uh, the only thing that I would say Malaysians are not used to is that on the weekend, here a lot of things are, are wrapped around sporting events. Mm-hmm. Uh, Malaysians are not not so used to that sort of sporting lifestyle. Uh, for them, the weekends is the family go to the mall, shopping all day, and have a meal there, and maybe watch a movie there, you know, before they go back. Here on the weekends, I find myself driving my children to all sorts of sporting stuff. So, <laughs> okay. so it's a completely different lifestyle. Yeah. So how old are your children? So I've got three very young young children. Uh, the eldest one has just started high school, and the other two in primary school. And uh, how have they adapted to the sort of Tasmanian lifestyle, I guess? Uh, they have no problems uh, adapting to the lifestyle here. Like I said, the schooling system in Malaysia is very different. At a primary school level, they want to drill as much information inside you as possible. Here, uh, you want a happy child, so they're very happy in the school system here. The only surprise I had was that it took them a very short amount of time to pick up an Australian accent. <laughs> so now, if I were to ask you to speak to my daughter on the mobile, you will not know that she's actually from, from Asia. She yeah. sounds exactly like an Australian. Yeah, well, kids pick up accents very quickly. Yes. You know, within a, I mean, even kids who come here without, uh, with very little English, after a year at school, they're talking like Australians. Yes, I, I think part of it is, is the way the school curriculum is built. The teachers spend a lot of time correcting their pronunciation. Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah, and I guess they're hearing, I mean, they're mimicking what they hear around them every exactly. day. Exactly. Well, I think the biggest misconception about Malaysia is probably that Malaysia is a single landmass, and most people do not realize that Malaysia actually consists of two separate landmass. One is the one that Australians are fairly familiar with, which is just north of Singapore, between Singapore and Thailand, that thing called the Malay Peninsula. So most Australians have been to that part. What they do is that in the old days, the Australian backpackers will fly to Singapore, then they'll take a bus to Johor Bahru, and from there they travel all the way up to Thailand. But people don't realize that there's a much bigger part of Malaysia, which lies on the islands of Borneo. And that part consists of two separate states. They're called Sabah and Sarawak. And I think not many Australians are aware that you know, that part of Borneo actually belongs to the Federation of Malaysia. And so are there the cultural differences in between those areas? So the way to understand it is, is basically that uh, Sabah and Sarawak on the island of Borneo are completely different from uh, the Malay Peninsula. They're de- different in terms of demographics. They're different in terms of history. And they're also very uh, different in terms of culture. So the way to understand how this all came up together is essentially uh, after the Second World War uh, in the early 50s, the British decided to get out of Southeast Asia. So at that time, they had five territories they controlled, and that was Malaya, Singapore, Sarawak, Brunei, and North Borneo, which is called Sabah now. So they tried to lump it all together into a thing called the Federation of Malaysia. So they were successful in pulling all these four territories together, with the exception of Brunei. Brunei was supposed to join the Federation of Malaysia, but they pulled at the very last minute. So that's the reason why uh, you have a thing called the Federation of Malaysia today, and that's the reason why Sabah and Sarawak on the island of Borneo became part of uh, the Federation, even though they have very little in terms of uh, demography, culture, language, in terms of similarities with Peninsula Malaysia. 
Malaysia, like most countries in Southeast Asia, is extremely diverse. So Malaysia has always had a large minority population of mainly Chinese and Indians. And these people were brought over during the colonial times to open up the economy, especially things like rubber plantation, uh, tin ore mines, and so on and so forth. So at the time of independence, almost 40% of the population consists of the Chinese and the Indians. So that's the reason why if you go to Malaysia today, uh, very often you find that uh, these three major races are represented in, you know, people talk about Malaysia as being a paradise for food. And mm-hmm. the reason is because you've got three major cultural traditions there. You've got the Indian tradition, you've got the Chinese tradition, then you've got the Malay tradition. So each of them have their very own unique kind of food and culture. So if you're the sort of person who likes to go to a place uh, where you can enjoy different type of food, different type of culture, Malaysia is probably ideal for you. Yeah, and so... To today in sort of Malaysian society, uh, are those um, do those groups have distinct roles? Do they fulfil distinct roles in the society? Uh, no. It used to be the case where the non-Malays, the Chinese and Indian, used to dominate the economy and the Malays dominate government. But today you find that uh, you know after fifty years of independence. Uh, the economy is fairly well spread out. Uh, the only area where the non-Malays or the Chinese Indians have not been able to penetrate are the government. So the government remains largely in the hands of the Malays, but in the private sector, you'll find you know, all the races and ethnic groups are well represented. Yeah, okay. Okay, so we've, we've given a bit of context about Malaysian society and culture. I want to ask you a bit about your own experience. So where, where did you grow up yourself? So I grew up in a very small town on the island of Borneo in Sarawak. And this town is called Kuching. Uh, when I say small, I mean by Asian standards. But the population of Kuching is bigger than the entire population of Tasmania. So it's a population of close to 700,000 and Tasmania only has uh, less than half a million. What was the environment like where you were, were brought up? How would you describe it? Well, if you have a guess, uh, places like Borneo, where I grew up, was a very multicultural, multi-religious place. So you sort of grow in an environment where it's very common for you to speak two or three different dialects. Uh, when you go to school, you meet people from all backgrounds. But I suppose the thing that really stands out is that you sort of celebrate a half a dozen cultural celebrations every year, which you don't get to do in many societies. So you celebrate sort of the Chinese New Year, the Lunar New Year. You also celebrate thing called Gawai, which is the Harvest Festival. And you celebrate Haraya, which is the Islamic end of the fasting month. So um, there are many things that you celebrate. And also it's, it's a quite an interesting place because you get to see that, you know, in a multicultural environment, uh, everybody brings the strength to the table. And you also makes you into a, into a better worldly person if, if, for lack of a better word. You tend to understand that the world doesn't revolve around one type of people. What was it like at school? Is the school system at that time, is it, was it quite a strict sort of environment? Generally speaking, schools in Southeast Asia are completely different to the school system as what understood in Australia. So over there, basically the idea of a primary school is that you try to uh, force the students there. Uh, discipline is a very big thing, but more importantly, they try to force you to digest as much information as possible. 
uh, there is no such thing as uh, personal development or personality development. Unlike schools in Australia, where, where they try to make the students happy, uh, why they try to teach you self-confidence, all those sort of things doesn't really exist in Southeast Asia. It sort of comes later at the secondary school level. So I think that's the major uh, difference between Australia and, say, most parts of Southeast Asia. But you mentioned that high school was somewhat different. Uh, what was what was the experience for you at studying at that period of time? I think my experience was was quite good. I mean, I enjoyed my high school years. Uh, obviously, you had uh, friends from different ethnic groups, but it's also uh, the sort of time that I grew up in high school was in the nineteen uh, eighties. I think in those days, uh, the world was very innocent. A perfect example of that was that you didn't have any social media. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to if you want to make an appointment with your friend, you can't just pick up your smartphone and, and, and send an email or, or a message. You have to physically uh, run around and look for a public payphone, if some of your <laughs> listeners remember. So you need to carry coins in your pocket. Yeah. And there's no such thing as a meeting immediately. Uh, you know, in the next half hour, you sort of have to make an appointment tomorrow or the day after. So it was a very innocent time. In those days in the 1980s in Surau, where I grew up with, you didn't even have personal computers. Yeah, and uh, there was no mobile phones. I remember the the mobile phones only came in in Surawa at least in the late nineteen eighties, and those were the huge things that looked like a a, a brick, yeah, or a briefcase. So it was it was a time where everything was very innocent, you know. So I think that world doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the same would probably apply to Tasmania. In fact, I mean, I think growing up, we didn't even have a TV in my family. Amazing to think about now. Mm. <laughs> it's changed in your own lifetime. And so did you have any ambition or, or life plan when you were uh, at high school? Uh, not really. I, I, I think for people of my generation in those days growing up in a small town like Kuching, I think essentially what we wanted to do was that if we're lucky, we get to go to university and hopefully find a good job and find a life partner. I think most of us, well, for my, my class at least, I don't remember any of us expressing, uh, you know, an ambition to leave Sarawak and, and move somewhere else. I think a lot of us understood that Sarawak was quite a pleasant place to live in, that as long as you find the right life partner and got a good job, you can sort of make a fairly good, decent life. After you went to high, after you left high school and all that, what, where did your life sort of take you then? Uh, sure. Well, well my, my life is slightly different from the majority of my uh, classmates and people I grew up with. So basically, after high school, I was looking for university to study. And uh, it was made clear to me that uh, it was very difficult to get into Malaysian university. So I started looking around and obviously the closest Western type education I could get outside of Malaysia was probably Australia. Even in those days, right, Australia was regarded as quite close uh, because you only need to take a, you know, some like a thirteen-hour flight uh, twenty years ago, thirty years ago. So even then, it was considered much closer, say, say, than going to places like America, North America, or the UK. The reason why a lot of Malaysian students like Australia was because of the Colombo Plan. So many of the graduates uh, have have told Malaysian, other Malaysians that Australia is a good place to study. It's a fairly new country and Generally speaking, it was much easier to adapt to Australia, say, compared to, uh, you know, very old societies like the UK 
or even America. Uh, but I think the main main thing for most Malaysians at that time was that Australia was the closest Western country. I think a lot of the students from that era, because communications was quite difficult, a lot of them wanted to go back to Malaysia at least once a year. Uh, nowadays, of course, it's completely different. It doesn't matter where you are because you can do Zoom calls, you can do whatever it is. It's much easier. But in those days, uh, it was a big thing about going to a place that was close enough for you to come back or go home at least once a year. And so so you ended up studying in Australia? Yes. So what happened was that I, I, I came and did high school, the South Australian matriculation. And after that, I, I studied at the University of Adelaide. So I was here for, uh, I live in Adelaide. Then I did my second degree at the University of Sydney. Then I started my uh, first formal career as a journalist in Singapore. Okay. okay. And so um, so you're quite young when you came to Australia, I guess. I came, I think, uh, at that time, I would have been 18 years old. 18 years. Yeah. So how, how was it for, um, and that was your first time out of Sarawak? Uh, no, uh, uh, my family was quite lucky. Uh, I, I, I have been to other places like Singapore uh, before I came to Australia. I also went to, I think, Thailand and Hong Kong when I was younger, before I came to Australia. Yeah. So how, how was, like, what was your, what were your, do you remember what your sort of first uh, impressions were of Australia and how you felt about the experience? I think when I arrived in Adelaide, I think the, the, the well, I mean, I don't think I was surprised by a lot of stuff, but if there were any surprises about Adelaide, was that I was surprised how spread out Adelaide was. Because in places that I've been to in Malaysia, uh, you don't have those sprawling suburbs. So I was quite surprised that when I arrived in Adelaide, you know, you know, the, the suburbs sort of go on forever. And I was also in, in, in some ways surprised by the landscape. It was quite dry. I didn't expect South Australia to be that dry. So your first job was as a journalist. Yes. Yeah, and how did that how did that come about? Uh, basically, I, I've always been lucky in terms of career. So before I finished my degree, I was offered a job in Singapore. Uh, in those days, uh, Singapore followed the British system. They had a state broadcaster called the Singapore Broadcasting Corporation, which is the Singapore version of the BBC. So I was offered a job there as a financial journalist. I really enjoyed my time over there because I realized that you know being a journalist is a real privileged position because you get to see things that other people will normally see. The the best thing about being in financial journalism is that you tend to, to go to the best hotels because what happened is that uh, most of the big companies in Singapore in those days, uh, they used to, to announce their annual results and they always do it in the afternoon after the stock market is closed, so it's usually early evening and they always make sure uh, they look after the journalists because they, they want you to report yeah. only the good things. So I remember going to a lot of, uh, a lot of nice hotels a lot of uh, good food and wine, you know, before the formal press conference about the annual report. So yeah, I really enjoy myself uh, working as a financial journalist in Singapore. So how, how long did you uh, work there then? So I was in Singapore for, for two years. I, I expected to have a long career in Singapore, but what happened was that uh, my friend in Surau asked me to go back because there was an election there and he knew that I was interested in politics. So I went back to Surawak and sort of uh, uh, cover the, the elections over in Sarawak. So after Sarawak, I, I decided that uh, you know, it's time to go back to university to do my PhD. So I started looking around for scholarships. So I was quite lucky again. I managed to secure a scholarship to New Zealand. So I ended up in Wellington. 
you find that local people here that you that you meet have much knowledge of Malaysia or Malaysian culture? I think most of the Tasmanians I've met, most of them have heard of Malaysia. What is not widely known is that Malaysia as a country has always been in the top two or three of Tasmania's trade for the last 10, 15 years. And there's actually a lot of links between Tasmania and the state of Sarawak and Malaysia because of the timber thing. So, uh, and even with hydroelectric uh, uh, power projects. So in Sarawak, when they were building a lot of dams, the major consultant to the dam project is actually a Tasmanian firm. Even today, there is a Tasmanian engineering firm that still do consulting work in Sarawak in terms of the dam projects. And also, uh, because of the timber thing, uh, trade between uh, Tasmania and Malaysia has always been robust. Mm-hmm. And I suspect uh, it will actually get better in the coming years. Uh, one of the interesting developments this year, uh, which is very good for Tasmania, is the fact that the former Premier of Tasmania, Will Hodgman, has been appointed the Australian High Commissioner to Singapore. And I'm sure he will use that position to promote even more trade between uh, Southeast Asia and Tasmania. And I guess also there's many personal connections have developed through many Malaysians coming to study here in the 1990s and 80s in uh, University of Tasmania. Uh, what is not widely known is that the University of Tasmania Law School have a long association with the legal fraternity in the states of Sabah and Sarawak. Some of the leading lawyers in, in those states are graduates of the University of Tasmania. So there are lots of legacy students from those states coming to study at the law program here at the university. Yeah, and I guess people maybe don't appreciate how or, or underestimate how important that kind of thing can be having those international personal ties and close ties can really um, give, just give Tasmania a little bit of an edge or, or get at least a bit more profile, which is important for a small, small faraway island like we are. And what about on, on, on the other side? Uh, how much do Malaysians know about um, Tasmania or Australia? I think Malaysians have a very positive uh, image of Australia. Uh, Malaysians know all the major capital cities because most of them have taken a holiday there. But I think they have very limited knowledge of Tasmania. I would argue that most of them do know that Tasmania is part of Australia. Uh, But the first thing that comes to their mind is that if I'm going for a holiday in Melbourne or Sydney, it's just too difficult for me to get to Tasmania because i got to do another flight. So it's not like if I fly to Sydney or Melbourne, you know, I can hire a car, drive around. Uh, I can't obviously... uh, I can take the car through the Spirit of Tasmania, but you know it's just too much of a hassle. So those Malaysians uh, who come over to Tasmania are those who really want to come to Tasmania. So we're sort of attracting a very, uh, very niche market in terms of tourism. But I think generally, I think uh, Malaysians have heard of Tasmania. They know Tasmania is part of Australia. It's just that they think it's very difficult to get here. Say so you were advising. Um, you knew of Malaysians who were thinking about settling in Tasmania. What do you think they would need to know before making a decision or making a commitment? What are some of the? Things? I don't think they need to know anything. I think those who who those Malaysian professionals who come here, uh, unlike the other major uh, uh, migrant groups. Most of the Malaysians who settle in Tasmania are professionals. In other words, they have a firm job offer before they, they come here. Yep. So they won't have any problem uh, settling in. I think 
most of them uh, also like the idea that uh, the quality of life here is, is very high. So I'll just give you an example, my own personal example. When I was living in Kuala Lumpur a few years ago, um, I, can, I live in a high-rise condominium like most people do in Kuala Lumpur. So if you stand in, in my condominium, you can actually see uh, my workplace. It's probably about what, three or three and a half kilometers away from my condominium. Every morning when I drive to my workplace, it will take me a minimum of 45 minutes because of the huge traffic jams you find in Kuala Lumpur. Here, you know, if, if, if it takes me more than 20 minutes to get from my home to my workplace, you know, I will spend the rest of the day complaining about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's really no comparison in terms of uh, lifestyle here. And I think uh, people living in Ireland are very privileged. Unless you live in a really big city where there are lots of pollution, you have no idea how privileged you are to live on the island. For Tasmanians or Australians who may be dealing with Malaysians, what do you think they should know about, know or know more about when dealing with Malaysians, or what should they bear in mind? For the majority of Australians, I think they see Malaysia uh, as one of the more developed countries in Southeast Asia, and therefore I think they see Malaysians as mostly people from the professional class, uh, unlike, uh, say, migrants from some of the other countries in the region. I think the other thing is that uh, a lot of Australians have this idea that Malaysia is a cheap place to go for holidays where the food is cheap. You can try different type of uh, Asian cuisine. Accommodation is cheap. Uh, everything is cheap. I think that that is the sort of reputation Malaysia has. And also, I think uh, Malaysians in Australia have a fairly good reputation in that uh, they don't get in trouble. I've been involved in Australia for on and off for more than 20 years. Uh, I haven't come across a major story about a Malaysian involving a bit scam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wouldn't name other Asian nationalities, but... <laughs> I don't think you can, you know, you know, I don't think 60 Minutes have done a story about a Malaysian, you know, doing something nasty in Australia. No, I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. It's almost like stereotyping, but, but generally I think the Malaysian community here tend to just sort of get on with their work. They tend to keep a fairly low profile. Uh, but I think in the last uh, four or five years, I think... Uh, they're facing perhaps uh, more problems because even in Tasmania, when I walk around, uh, people here assume I'm from China yeah. because I look Chinese. And unless I tell them I'm not from China, the default thinking is that you, know, you must be from China because you know you speak like a Chinese and you look like a Chinese. <laughs> what of cultural differences do you think Australians should be aware of um, when it comes to dealing with Malaysians? I'm thinking more about Malaysians in Australia rather than Australians travelling to Malaysia. Okay, I think um, in general, I think Australians need to understand that it's not only Malaysians, but people from Southeast Asia, they're not as outspoken as as Australians. Uh, Just because they don't answer you directly doesn't mean that they don't have an opinion. Uh, Just because they they don't uh, answer you immediately, that doesn't mean uh, they don't know the answer. I think very often with Southeast Asians, uh, they've been taught in the society to always be polite to strangers and they're always taught not to answer back immediately. So the sort of answers they give you are usually very measured answers. So I think uh, the way to understand it is that you know when an Australian talk to somebody from Southeast Asia, whether you're Malaysian, Thai, Filipino or Indonesian, I think uh, the way to do it is that uh, let them answer at their own pace. Don't push for an answer. 
I think very often you know, Australians tend to be very straightforward people and uh, they want a straightforward answer immediately. Uh, that doesn't happen very often in most Asian societies. Uh, in my case, I'm very different. If you ask me a question, I'll blast it back to you straight away. <laughs> yeah, but that's a, really, that's a very good very good point that you make. And this is my last question. Uh, what about the, on, um, on the flip side, what should Malaysians, what kind of cultural differences should they be aware of when, if they're dealing with Australians perhaps? I think Malaysians understand Australian uh, very well. I think the, if there's going to be any cultural miscom- miscommunication, I think it's, the, it's mostly related to Australian jokes. Okay. I think unless you've lived in this country for a while, I think a lot of jokes doesn't make sense to you. In the old days, they probably have some problems with some of the Australian sayings, but I think a lot of the old Australian sayings have disappeared. The example I like to give is that, you know, 20 years ago, one of the favorite sayings for a female is Sheila. You hardly, <laughs> nobody uses that term anymore. No, only, so, old, only old men, yes, actually. Yes, yes. So I think uh, those things you don't have to worry about. But I think, um, you know, sometimes when Australia made jokes, I think a lot of Malaysians will not understand the jokes, especially political jokes, because obviously, you know, a lot of Malaysians will understand the Australian political system. Yeah, and uh, humor is very... Um culturally based yes anyway isn't it very culturally specific so thank you very much for the opportunity to speak to you always happy to promote multiculturalism in Tasmania Mm -hmm.